Good morning, church. We are getting ready to go into Luke 23, and we're going to be starting at verse 26 through uh, 33. We start off this morning by the reading of this word. And uh, let's all stand. And, uh, hey, Avell, could you, uh, could you read that section? Yeah. 26 to 33. Right. As they led him by the way, they seized Simon from Syrian, who was on his way and from the country, and put put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including um, women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed them. They will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and let the hills cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. We get a picture in this section that was just read of what it was like amongst the crowd as Jesus was marched to the cross. Something that was foreordained by the triune God. But at the same time, it's a horrible day as mankind is responsible for killing the Creator, Lord of the universe, your Son. But this was all planned by you. And even in that, Lord, we take great comfort because you are in control. And once again, we see a passage where your sovereign grace is seen so dramatically. In your Son's name we pray, Amen. Amen. Have you ever imagined what it would have been like if you would have been at that Passover in Jerusalem and that very day where Jesus had been arrested and condemned and was getting ready to be crucified. Can you imagine? Could you put yourself in that place while this is happening? This is the biggest festival of the year, the Passover. And it is that day. It's the Passover day. We've heard Jesus, let's say, teaching. Maybe we saw some of His miracles during that week as He taught in the temple. And so you latched on to that. You might have gone there a couple of days to hear this man preach and teach. So, you get up on this morning, this Passover morning, excited, you get into the town, 
are actually you're looking for uh, the temple. You know where it's at, but you're going there. Uh, you're out in the streets of Jerusalem, and all of a sudden you hear lots of noise. You heard it a little bit before, and now as you get closer, it sounds like just a great big huge mob. People are yelling. They're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And the sentence was given to crucify the most innocent man who's ever lived. This God-man, Jesus. And we know that this is the man that preached peace. He preached what true peace was because he was the prince of peace. And he healed people. He did everything that was always good. So we see now that the nation does not receive him. As it says in John, his people received him not. As a whole, there were a few. What a turn of events. In a matter of short time, people turned on him. The religious leaders have been against him all along. Now the people are against him. And these last few days, he's been preaching the gospel. And you're going, what is going on? I heard him. And why is he being taken to the cross. Can you imagine that? The emotions have controlled people and they've taken them out of control. Out of control people as they're saying crucify him. And the leaders and now the people get their way. They get their way in killing Christ. God is not surprised, folks. This is the plan. So there are people here that have been involved. The religious leaders are the people that are the most guilty. They knew his miracles. They knew his teaching. But yet they willfully rejected him as Savior and as God. And they taunted him. They're responsible for crucifying him. Also, the Roman soldiers were guilty of mocking him and doing all that they did out of ignorance and stupidity. There were many that were standing around that were just curious. Just like you might have been if you just happened to venture going into the, the city and then all of a sudden you see all this ruckus going on. It's a riot. Or would have been that's why Pilate finally backed off and said, okay, we can't have any riots. It's that close. So he gave in. He caved. And that's where we left off last week. And then you had the thieves on the cross. We know they're both taunting him and mocking him. But one of them will come to repentance. There's the multitudes witnessing this whole spectacular spectacle something terrible took place as far as humankind is concerned God 
actually is going to save what we're going to look at today. We're going to save a couple of people by His grace. Now there might have been a lot more in this, but I'm going to focus on these two. But there's other people that are involved. Simon of Cyrene is an interesting, interesting study because it's God's sovereign grace that uses this moment, and it's not by accident that Simon the Cyrene shows up at this time to do what he did. So we'll look at these other characters. I do want to tell you, this is the greatest story of the religious apostasy apostasy in all of Israel's history from Old Testament time all the way to right here. This is apostasy that's exposed for all to see. Covering all span of time. His own received him not. Amazing. But two of them out of all this multitude, are going to respond savingly. One of them is a stranger from North Africa. The other is a thief to be crucified on the cross with Jesus. Neither one of them knew that day that they were going to know Christ and what eternal life is and to get their sins forgiven. They didn't know that when the day started. But God has something in mind. And He always does what He has planned. Have you ever seen Him fail once? Never. So that's a great hope we have. And that's what I want to give to all you guys. We have the most hope that could ever possibly be. We're on the side of Christ. He'll never let us down. Never, never, never. You know, uh, you see... These people that are responsible for crucifying the Savior. But really, it should also get us to examine our own hearts. It's a spectacle of the cross. It should overwhelm us with the awfulness of our sin that made Christ go to the cross. That being said, we call this Down the Via Dolorosa. We sing that song, Down the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, the way of sorrow. This is the path that's to Golgotha. From the place where they had condemned him, they now walk him to the cross. They put the cross on his back (coughs) after he's had 39 lashes beaten to a pulp his back has been he survived that he's still living of course he has to he has to take all the sin of the world on him that's really what the cross represents physically he's going through this but spiritually what he does as he is separated from the father he takes on our sin that will be leading up to in the next few weeks the death of Christ so we've been looking at the murder of Christ. Very first uh, verse we look at here today is verse 26. One verse about Simon of Cyrene. But we're going to look at several verses to find out who this man is and who God used in an amazing way. 
when they had led him away, Christ, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Now these would be, as we see here, they led him away. That would be the Pharisees, be the Sadducees, the scribes, chief priests, the elders, the Sanhedrin, Supreme Court, all those guys are right there. They have planned this and they want to see this happen. And they're going to make sure it goes through. Isn't that what the evil people do? Man, they do everything they can. But if God didn't want to do it at that time, He would have stopped it. But now it's going through because it's time. It's time for it to happen. So, the ones who were responsible for arresting Him, there they are. There's the Roman soldiers. They're physically leading Him there. All of these are enemies. They're murderers. So the first part, there are enemies of Jesus. We move to number two, Simon of Cyrene. They seized him. The Roman soldiers seized him. Now, this is Simon. We haven't met him before. He's walking out of from the country towards the city. He's going to go into the walls, probably maybe even trying to get the rest of the preparations for the Passover who knows? It's Passover day. This is the holiday of holidays. Sounds in the street. The sights that are there. Is it his first time here? We don't know. Could be. Maybe he's been here before. I will tell you, it came a long way. He's from North Africa. From the very, what would be the west side of this country that would be Libya. We know it as Libya today, which is in North Africa. West of Egypt. It's about 1,200 miles or so. Whatever it is, maybe he's been there all week. Maybe he just got there. Boy, if he did, he just got there for that kind of trip. Must have it mapped out perfectly. But I will tell you, he's got to be excited. He had no idea he was going to run into this Jesus. He's a Jew. And here's Jesus with a cross. And everybody knows that's the worst way to die. This man must be a criminal of the worst kind for this to happen. And so there he is, and... This is a maybe a, this march is a couple hundred yards away or so, and maybe he just passed Jesus as they go on opposite ways, sees the cross, and all of a sudden it's just like Jesus. Maybe he just collapses beneath the carrying of that weight on him. He's greatly weakened by all what's happened. He was arrested arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was then taken to trial. Six of them in between those. He was beaten, spit upon, treated in the worst way that any man could be, beaten to a pulp, and then he had the 39 stripes, the lashes, numerous beatings. He survived it, and by this time, he doesn't have enough strength. It's just like it collapses down. 
all of a sudden they grab Simon. It seized him. They forced him. He didn't have an option. Hey, do you want to carry that? Oh yeah, sure. No, nobody wants to do that. So they put it on him and he carries it the rest of the way. Uh, who is this man? Who is this criminal? Probably has no idea. We don't know. But he was made to carry this cross to Calvary. Soldiers command him. He's forced. The primary reason for the inclusion of this story is yet to be seen. That's what we're going to find out. Where was he from? He's from Libya. What area of Libya? Tripoli. That's where he's from. From that area. From Cyrene. That's that area. People came from everywhere for the Passover feast. What a celebration. It's great for people to celebrate and enjoy. We have our holidays. Here they have theirs. Religious feasts that they were. Fifty days later at Pentecost, and that's what Penta means, fifty, fifty days later at Pentecost, we see a list of some of the nations where the people came to uh, celebrate at Pentecost that very same year. Let's go to Acts 2 for starters. Acts 2 verse 10. People came from all over the world. Long distances. We will see this one place, Cyrene, mentioned in here, along with other places. Let's pick it up at verse 9. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene. I will tell you that Cyrene had a big population of Jews living there at that time. And it's mentioned here around Cyrene. Districts of Libya around Cyrene. Josephus' historian tells of a synagogue of many Jews in Cyrene. So yes, that is true. Uh, we'll see that this is kind of um, a going pattern here, This the Cyrenians now. Notice the sovereignty of God in His grace as you go through this and then we'll kind of sum that up because this is what it's about. He takes a man who was not even looking for Christ saw him the way that he was and he takes his cross with him. In the, as time goes, he will become saved. Okay, and look at this. Now, go to chapter 6 of Acts, verse 9. This is rather incredible to witness. Acts 6, 9. Stephen is preaching this tongue. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, 
some from Cilicia and Asia rose up and argued with Stephen. These are Jews. Some men are from the synagogue of the freedmen. That means they're descendants of Jewish slaves, slaves at one time. They were taken to Rome, and then they were later freed, and they formed a community like these. The freedmen. Simon, looks like one of them. Now this is later on in history, but it's interesting to follow the line of the Cyrenians. Now, chapter 11, verse 20. Catch this. Yeah, persecution of the church, very early. Verse 19 says, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution were occur occurred in connection with Stephen. Remember him? That's just who we saw in 6. Made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Did you catch something there? What you have here is this time now, instead of the freedmen or the Jews, you have some people from Cyrene who are Jews who have now become Christians. Where did they get that news from? I'm not going to say it. Simon is going to have a lot to do with it, isn't he? This is all past tense after the, after the cross here in Acts, right? So, we're, And we're talking Antioch. Antioch is a big center of Christianity at this time. Let's keep reading here about this Antioch. You saw that, right? In verse 19, you got you got people from Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. But there were some of them in verse 20, men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Who would be the people from Cyrene who went to Antioch? They would be Christians who were once Jews who are now preaching to Gentiles. At Antioch, which let's learn a little bit more about Antioch and the church there. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. What's happening there? Well, there's a, a lot of Christians, new Christians, and some of them are from where? Cyrene. Verse 23, Then he arrived and witnessed the grace of God. He rejoiced, began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he is a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Uh, this is Barnabas, right? He came there to Antioch and he said, Wow, there's something happening here. This, it's like this is the center of Christianity now. It's not Jerusalem. It's moved on up to Antioch. There's still a church in Jerusalem, believe me. And so Barnabas says, wow, what's going on? 
He's a son of encouragement. He comes in there and encourages these guys. He says, keep doing what you're doing. This is amazing. Wouldn't you be excited to find out that these men are were once Jews? They came from all over and then Gentiles, but now you've got this preaching here for, for everybody. He left for Tarsus to look for Saul. Barnabas is there looking for who was later, later going to be called Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church, Paul and Barnabas and all those other guys, and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Something is happening. Wouldn't you want to go there? That's the focus, the central. And that's where, that's the ones that were brought from other places. But some from where... Cyrene was at and become converted. Who took that news of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected? Simon takes it to them. And we'll see later, I'll get some more passages here to back that up a little bit more. Keep that in mind, okay? So, okay, what we have here is where he's going. He had been outside of Jerusalem He's heading for downtown Jerusalem, somewhere in the city. He wants to celebrate the feast that night. We know that. What was he commanded to do? He had no idea, but to... There it is. Now it's changed. His plans are changed. He's to take this cross. And for this man who has a serious crime, Simon, by the way, is a common name amongst Jewish men. So... You know, to be fair, you know, it's the way time you see Simon, it could be anybody. You know, there's Simon Peter, right? Here's this Simon of Cyrene. But you check the scriptures and uh, things, things start to come together a little bit more. He desired to be a part of the Passover in Jerusalem. God's sovereign grace shines through this. He becomes a believer. Mark writes to the Romans... And turn to Mark 15. And Mark, remember, who who is he writing to? His people are the Romans, for the most part. Although it gets to everybody, you know, like us. But that's what it was originally for. Matthew wrote to the Jews, and therefore he has the genealogies, and he uses terms that the Jews would understand. Mark writes to Romans, he uses terms that they would understand. And so, by the time we get to Mark 15, verse 21, we get this. They pressed into service a passerby from coming from the country. This is the same passage. It goes along with our Luke passage. Simon of Cyrene, and he says this, the father of Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross. Now Luke just says what? Simon of Cyrene, right? Here, it's Simon of Cyrene who happens to be the father of Alexander and Rufus. Mentions his sons. Why would he do that? Well, if you knew who they were, you'd go, Oh, yeah. These guys, I would say, are probably living in Rome. As the letter would go there, by the way, Mark probably was written 
after Paul wrote Romans. Very good possibility, and many commentators, most commentators will say that. They will also also say Rufus is the Rufus that's found in Romans, which we're turning to right now, is that same Rufus that we see in Mark. So we go to Romans 16.13, trying to track this down with the best that we can. Romans 16.13 says, Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them, Greet Philogus and Julia and Eurus and the sister and Olympias and all the saints who are with them. Uh, but in verse 13, what does it say? Greet Rufus. That's the one that they start with. A choice man in the Lord. This is Paul writing this. Also his mother and mine. Greet Rufus. He's telling all the people, hey, greet these guys, greet these guys starts off in this area here of Rufus. He's a choice man. He's an elect man in the Lord. He was chosen by God. He has been quite a servant. Quite a representative of God that he is. Rufus. Now, it's interesting that he comes into play because Mark wrote about Rufus. Rufus very well possibly came from, of course, you know, his father, which is the star of our passage today. And who knows, maybe they all got spread out. Maybe they stuck together for a while. They wind up in Rome there at the early days of the church. And there Paul is recognizing him as he writes to there. And he says, Rufus. And then he says a little thing like, also his mother and mine. So his mother was with him. Matter of fact, she probably helped Paul in some of his travels. Maybe she helped, maybe she nursed, was like a nurse to him or supported him in his travels. He had people that he went with. Or like maybe at Rome, whatever the deal was, he knew her and it was like she was just like a mother. The mother of Rufus and, by the way, mine also. Look what she did, right? You can understand that. We speak in those terms too. I think we've learned a lot with all these verses. That this is God working, regardless if it's these names or not, and somebody else. And I don't believe it is anybody else. I think it's these guys. I think this is the whole, this is the family of the one that we see here in Luke, Simon of Cyrene. If that be the case. And like I say, it still doesn't matter because God ordained all of this to happen. As this man was there at that perfect timing, saved by God's grace. So one of the Cyrenians we know actually from Antioch commissions Paul and Barnabas to go to a missionary journey. How far they had come. God, His sovereign providence, His sovereign grace, Simon, the cross-bearer, becomes a believer takes the truth back 
to Cyrene and a church starts there. They send out people to other places, one of them like Antioch, which becomes a focal center and the Christians are first called Christians there at Antioch. They send out Paul and Barnabas, of all people, guys. Barnabas is encouraging them and they're encouraging him and say, Paul and Barnabas, we need you to go out. We've got to work here and there's so many. Can you guys go? We commission you. They will go. Came from these guys right here, the Cyrenians. The grace of God is incredible. The providence that it's worked out. Nothing's by accident, folks. And what seemed to be so terrible that way of sorrows, the way of suffering, is the place where God had chosen for Simon to be instrumental to the rest of the body of the church. I just wonder if it was Simon who said, we're Christians. As people had said that, and they say, you know, it was usually was said in a very negative tone. Ah, they're little Christs. Yeah, they think they're like Christ, or they speak, Christ, you know, they make fun of them. It was done in a derogatory term in some way. Hey, we, t- we wear that name proudly, don't we? Mm-hmm. Now we go to the third one. I actually spent most of my time in this message on Simon, so we'll probably go a lot quicker now. Did you guys like that? That one verse? I found that rather incredible. And everything that I always try to see is the the providence of God. Because He's weaving a story. Somehow we fit into this story. We don't find our names here, but we are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Does that give you encouragement? He had planned for us just like all those other guys. Now, verse 27 of Luke 23. And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. We'll just do that first. The crowd. I'm not going to spend much time on this one at all. When he came into the city of Palm, uh, what would be called Palm Sunday, when he came to Jerusalem, right? As he came into the city and they're shouting what? Hosanna. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Um, He had raised Lazarus from the dead shortly before this at some time. So he comes in the crowd, just gathers and gathers on that triumphal entry that we know of as to be that final resurrection of people there, at least in that way, a miracle drew the crowd. They're shouting. We don't know if some of these people are the ones that were in that crowd. We tend to think there probably are some because they were sure interested in Him at that time. And this morning that they are sentencing Christ and then also marching him now to the crucifix. They're curious what's what's happened here. Uh, he's supposed to be our king. He's going to rescue us from the Romans. He hasn't done it yet. 
uh, I wonder what's going to happen. Is he, is he going to be able to come off the cross? He's going to break loose out of this, isn't he? What's going to happen to Jesus? What will, can he do anything? I think they are just absolutely stunned. And maybe they're still waiting for him to lead the attack on the Roman Empire right there in Jerusalem that day. Well, that would be a Passover time, wouldn't it? They're very disappointed. Some of them are. He'd been talking about his death. That probably got around. He kept saying his his kingdom was not earthly. Maybe they're discouraged. They didn't do... I mean, he didn't do what they wanted him to do politically. Maybe he would be able to get off the cross and come down. Some even challenged him that, mainly in a probably a derogatory way. If you're really him, you know, if you're the Messiah, then you could come down off the cross, right? I think most of them were making fun of him at that time. But, uh, these people are confused, they're vacillating, they're fickle, they're disappointed. They're not responsive to the truth that he taught. They're just, this story of them is just as tragic as we had spoke about the other ones, the murderers of Jesus. And you know what? They're going to end up at the same hell that the other ones who are responsible in condemning him, they'll be put in the same place. Unless, by the grace of God, they're saved. And they trust in Christ alone as their Savior. We go to the fourth group characters here. The daughters of Jerusalem. Interesting here. Boy, does he have a lot of words here. And of women, in verse 27, who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breast that never nursed. Then they'll begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now that seems rather odd. What's going on with this? Does this sound confusing? It's really not. I don't think that they got it at the time. He says, stop crying for me. Weep for the days ahead. Days ahead that are coming. Because it will be like no other day that you've ever experienced. Don't weep for me. Jesus is exhausted. How does He even have any breath to speak but yet he's still interacting with the crowd. A group of women who are mourning and 
weeping and crying and wailing. Luke singles them out here. Out of this multitude, the multitude is in absolute curiosity and overwhelmed by it all. The women here, they will be so sad for what happens and they could be two reasons why they're doing it. And these are not really Jesus' mother and you know Mary or Martha and some of the other ones. These are what could be very possibly professional mourners who would weep and wail. But I do think it's sincere because I think most people really have an idea that he but he is innocent, isn't he? It's sad that this man has to be taken away this way. They see him bleeding, bruised, can't even recognize who he is, although they might know who it is. I believe their grief is genuine, entirely sincere. Jesus explains to them that the real tragedy is not that he's going to the cross because you see that has to be done doesn't it to pay for the sins the real tragedy is what's going to happen to the nation what's going to happen to them and what does he call them here Jesus turning to them to take the time to try to even speak you ever been so beaten physically by just working real hard, being out in the sun, and you're tired, do you feel like really calling up somebody at that time and start chatting with them? Or there's somebody, oh my, I'm so tired, and here's my neighbor coming across the street, and I know he's going to talk my leg off for the next two hours. I don't feel like it, right? Jesus probably physically didn't feel like saying or doing anything. Lifts up their eyes to them, turns to them, speaks to them. He addresses these women with prophetic words. Jesus addresses the women as representatives of the nation. What do they call the daughters of Jerusalem? Has that ever been used before? Yeah. Look at Isaiah 37, 22. Isaiah 37, 22. This is, in 21 we see Isaiah speaks, it's sent, to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, because you prayed, okay, Isaiah, this is the word that the Lord has spoken against him, Sennacherib of Assyria. That was a menace of the ten tribes of Israel. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. The daughter of Jerusalem. Speaking in feminine terms 
identifying the nation of Israel. Let's go to Zephaniah 3.14. Give you some exercise in turning to these scriptures. Minor prophets sometimes are a little bit hard to find. Zephaniah is going to be around Haggai, if you happen to be in that area. You've probably already beaten me, but I'm, it's Zephaniah 3.14 is what it is. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. This is speaking about a remnant of Israel. There would be a few, a small percentage of Israelites who were true. The daughters of Israel. Okay, I think there's one more. And it's Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah is almost back near the very end of the Old Testament. Zechariah 9.9. This probably is a very familiar passage. This is from the triumphal entry. As far as Jesus is concerned, this was like days ago. That was prophesied hundreds of years ago. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Jesus quotes that. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That was at that time. And he calls them what? The daughter of Jerusalem. Israel. And there they are because they are ladies. He mentions that, the daughters of Israel. Jesus notes that they're weeping. They're weeping for the wrong ones. Because, as he says, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Prophecy. Judgment for the nation is what he's talking about. Go back to, to Luke 13.34. Luke mentions this other times. He's already mentioned this of what Jesus had said. Luke 13.34. You guys remember this verse, don't you? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus looks over Jerusalem, and he weeps over it because he knows that they are going to be judged in a severe way. It will happen in the near future. We look at Luke 19, 41-44. 
When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. He wept over it. This is, uh, okay now, what, what, what we know as Palm Sunday, all right? Or the triumphal entry. Here it is. He saw the city, he wept over it. He's weeping, right? He's not weeping for himself. He's grieving and weeping for who? Jerusalem. Saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave it with you with one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Christ visited them. The Messiah is here. They didn't recognize it. And He says you will be judged. Wow. One more. Luke 21. 20. Jesus grieves over the city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Right? So we get this two times. And here's the third time. 21. 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. Fall by the edge of the sword and such, right? What do we have here? This is 70 A.D. This is the judgment upon Jerusalem. The city was leveled, we all know. We've talked about this many times. You can't miss it. And obviously Jesus speaks about it much because that's why He would weep. That's what He wants them to weep over. This is a city that's going to be destroyed. Now, this is like somewhere around 33 A.D., somewhere in that vicinity. In less than 40 years, the temple will be leveled and so will the city. Not one stone upon another. Jesus gives a prophecy. Luke picks up on the prophecy. Is Luke writing this after this happened? No. Because that happened 70 A.D., Luke writes the gospel, and in him writing, he picks up and he says, "This is going. This is what's going to happen." He doesn't know when. How quickly would it happen within a decade, ten years? Because most scholars that are conservative put Luke at about 60 A.D. Within less than 30 years, Luke writes this gospel. Ten years later, it happened as he wrote that. As he's written also two other places, three other places besides this. Well, I think Jesus was really pointing out the prophecy. Did it come true? He, he said this less than 40 years before it happened. It was written many times. 
I think there's something to be said about the Word of God in prophecy. I think it speaks volumes to show that what we have here is legitimate. Nobody can tell that. And he gave details. Now he tells them, it would be better for you that you don't even have any children. No babies. I mean, in Israel or anywhere, usually it's a blessing to have kids. It always was. Matter of fact, in the Bible, there were some characters that didn't have kids. And they prayed to God. And then, of course, Elizabeth was one, wasn't she? She was barren. There were others. Go right on down the line. Abraham and Sarah, right? You can just... There's a story behind that, isn't there? They were considered cursed. So now, he's saying it's a blessing if you don't have any nursing babies. A lot of times, me and Carolyn talk about this. We're not uh, speaking Scripture here, so sometimes we could be speaking faulty. But we're saying, I don't think I would want to have any kids in the days we're living in right now. Have you guys ever thought that? Yeah. I, you know, I feel for somebody who has just kids, right? And, and I'm sensitive to that because I'm looking back there. Some of you have very young kids. <laughs> okay, so I'm not negating that. I'm just saying that it could be through hard times. But if I look at that in a human way and decided things in that way, I would not let... I would not let God be God and who He is because, honestly, He's the one who gives life after all, isn't He? So I speak not the Word of God, but my own thoughts. And they are worthless. But in this case, we can say Jesus knew what He was saying. It's going to make it very difficult because you're, you're kids and... Your children, even right now, your children, they might be five years old at that time, but at that time when that comes, another 35 years or whatever, they'll be 40. They'll, grandkids, right? Actually, our parents could have said, this is not a time that we want to have kids. You know, during World War II and that. Actually, that, that later was called the baby boomers which I can look across in this room and say, we all are products of the baby boom generation. So. Yeah, yeah. And then we have those millennials. Oh. But there is a difference between Christians and millennials. Vastly. Thank you, Avell. You, we need. We need you to go to that crowd because you're going to be around here probably a lot longer than we are. And then again, maybe not. Maybe Christ will come today. Uh, I'll take that. That's fine with me. I think it would be fine with you, wouldn't it? But if not, here's the deal. God's in control. He knows what He's doing. You're still back to their children. Yeah. And if they're Christians... Glory, hallelujah. That's what it's all about. So that's why we raise our kids to be Christians. And so therefore, did you see my faulty human thinking? That's why I said I'm not inspired, folks. Jesus is inspired this time. He's saying that there's really going to be judgment. There's really nothing good that's happening to anybody there. As a whole, the nation is judged and they're cursed. They're condemned. As a whole, the nation ended for a time being. 
So, what do we have here? We have weeping, weeping, future destruction of Jerusalem. And so, Jesus says, that's what you need to be weeping about. You mourn over the destruction. It's going to take a terrible toll on you. Titus of the Romans did it, came in. Prophecy came through, through, through Luke's point of view. He's saying something that happened in his lifetime, probably, I guess, right? Blessed are the barren. Things will be so bad that childbearing, normally a blessing, will be considered a curse. It's, uh, and then he says this. I'm back to Luke 23, right? Where did I? Where did it go? Here we go. Okay, a couple of pages there. Verse 30, Then they'll begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Destruction will be so vicious that those who have no children will be blessed. At least uh, they don't have to go through the suffering. A lot of other people will say to the mountains, Fall on us, cover us. It's found in Hosea 10, 8. Hosea the prophet, Hosea prophesied to the northern kingdom. And whenever the enemy would come in and take them captive and destroy them, the ten tribes, they will say, cover us up. We don't have a chance. Destroy us, mountains, hills. That also is said in in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6 says... um, in verse 15, and the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said, to the mountains and to the rocks fall on us and hide from us the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Fall on us, kill us, destroy us. Jesus says something, again, that is very simple, but is profound. And you might say, what does he mean by that? Are we catching it so far when he's saying blessed and cursed as far as the children are concerned? And he says, um, verse 31, For if they do these things, when the tree is given, what will happen when it is dry? What kind of trees do you have in this? Two of them. One of them green. One of them dry. What's the green tree? Easy. It's Jesus. That's the presence of God that is with them. A green tree represents life. Christ is life. If they'll do this with life, I am the green tree. I am the life If they'll do that to me, who is the innocent life, what more will they do to you, the dead tree? That's why God has to bring judgment in 70 A.D. on that nation. They were dead. 
no life whatsoever. Jesus is li- He's the presence. As long as you have the presence of God amongst you, you have life. But when the presence of God is taken from you, you have dry death. Now, does the green tree and the dry tree, does that help make sense? All along through here, He's, he's telling them, don't cry for Me. Look what's coming. He gives them judgment as He is being led down to the cross. I'm sure a lot of people hated Him even more when He said this. Because He speaks of judgment on the way to His crucifix. You know, a growing tree is something of great value. There He was. I am the vine, you are the branches. The dry tree is not of value. It's used for fuel. It is used for the fire. Spire speaks of judgment. Jerusalem's greatness is in the presence of her God. Her, that would be greenness, I mean. And her dryness is the absence of God. And he shows it. The wrath of God is whenever it's unleashed starts with just letting the people do whatever they want. Hands off. Let them do it. That's the wrath of God when He says, okay, it's all yours now. you got to do whatever you want. They do it. Then He says, okay, it's time to burn you up. And so He does. Destruction. It's happened all through mankind's history. All the nations have come. They've gone. Here we are. When Jerusalem abandoned God, and they already had, He gives them a little time period and He brings on the fire of destruction. He says, if this situation is really bad, as you're seeing me on this with this cross, and I'm going to die on the cross, basically. If you see this as, as bad, I want to tell you something. There's something that's far worse than this. You're going to be destroyed. You need to cry. You need to cry out with repentance. The last group of people are the two criminals. Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with Him. These guys deserve it. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals. One on the right hand, one on the left. They both make fun of Jesus while they're on the cross. And then one of them, by the grace of God, as wicked as a man this man was, a thief, robber, a wicked man. All of a sudden, he wants to be saved. Not from this physical sense. He's about ready to die. And we see it later on, and that's to be seen later as we go through Luke. Today, Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. That's sweet. Did this man deserve it? Did he do anything? Nothing. He did nothing. 
But the grace of God is what saves that man. You have two, two people. One of them saved. The other one is against Jesus all the way. He's judged. Today, that day, he did not go to paradise. He went to the burning flames. That's judgment. We see in this story, Simon of Cyrene, of how God in His providence and His grace deals with one who we would never have ever thought would have been saved and definitely not this man on the cross. Jesus works many ways mysteriously, doesn't He? He always works ways that we would never imagine. You know what that does for us? We don't have to weep and grieve like those daughters of Jerusalem because we know that our sin has been taken away. We have been judged. The fires stripped away and burn up all the sins that we had. We are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. So we can say here boldly that we have been taken care of very well. And we will continue because we are the sons and daughters of God, of the King. Let's pray. Father, very humbling story and yet a very encouraging story as we see how you use one man to bring great growth to the church who contributed significantly to the body of Christ, one of our brothers, who brought many other brothers along who we'll meet one day. We look to that day, Lord. In the meantime, we have the same message as Simon of Cyrene found out what it is. We glorify Your name, Lord. Your Word is truth. Your truth marches on, as the song says. And we say glory, glory, hallelujah. Lord, thank You for this truth today. And we thank You for Your people to meet together who are certainly free people in Christ. In Your Son's name, Amen. We have songs sing. And due to my lack of knowledge of how to play this song, Debbie is going to play. And Audrey is going to lead us in the singing of the Star Spangled Banner. So, should we all stand? Yes. <laughs> and, Audrey, what number are you on? 486. We're doing both verses, too. Both. There's two. Okay. Oh, say can
something in his music like
you all got to quit doing that. He wants to drink, he needs to do it all on his own. He needs to go buy it on his own. He needs to go mix it on his own. Nobody should help him. strains. 